Hi, everyone. This is Gregory Binstock, and I'm so excited to share with you this fifth episode of This Lawyer's Life. Five is our very first milestone, and we're so grateful to all our listeners. If you're enjoying This Lawyer's Life, please take a moment and leave us a five-star review or comment wherever you listen to us. And send a link of your favorite episode to a colleague. It makes a huge difference to us and our new show. Thanks for listening. Welcome to This Lawyer's Life, a podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Today, we meet Celeste Kuhleveld, a partner at Clifford Chance with over 25 years experience in federal, state, and local government. Celeste and Greg talked about the learning curve along the path from managing just herself as a line attorney to managing hundreds of attorneys beneath her. It was always talking about doing more with less and how could we be more efficient? And that kind of managerial practice and skill is different from just doing the job and telling somebody else how to do it too and having to manage numbers and figures and staffs. That was a skill that I had to work at and think about and acquire. Celeste also shared her insight about some of the challenges that the legal profession is facing today. The question, of course, is what is the AI drawing from? What data is it using to spit out whatever it's going to be spitting out? And this is one of the big concerns, I think, is the use of algorithms and what those algorithms do. And do they build in biases that we're actually trying to root out? Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Here's your host, Gregory Binstock. Welcome to This Lawyer's Life, a professional development podcast where we talk with lawyers about seizing opportunities, learning lessons the hard way, and about what makes them tick. I'm Gregory Binstock, Director of Professional Development here at the New York City Bar Association. And today I have the pleasure to chat with Celeste Kuhleveld. Celeste Kuhleveld, you're a partner at Clifford Chance with over 25 years of experience in federal, state, and local government. You were chief of the criminal division, chief appellate attorney, and chief of general crimes in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. You were executive assistant corporation counsel for the New York City Law Department, and you were deputy superintendent and special counsel in the New York State Department of Financial Services. And now you're here with us. Welcome, Celeste. We're so glad to have you. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to join you. Celeste, you've held a number of important titles as a prosecutor and in government. If I were a law student or an associate and I wanted to follow in your footsteps, what advice would you give me? My advice would be to take advantage of uh, opportunities that are presented to you uh, by uh, really just putting your best foot forward always, uh, trusting that putting the best foot forward will lead to good results. Develop relationships with people around you. Take advantage of the opportunities that are presented to develop those relationships. Uh, I think over time, over the course of your career, you'll find that various people and maybe even people that you don't expect will end up becoming your mentors and your friends. And that's the beauty of a career with lots of different aspects to it, that you meet many different people and learn from them and enrich your own life. Can you give us an idea of a general sense of your career path, just so we have a sense of how that worked? Sure. After law school, I clerked for a federal judge that was Kenneth Convoy in the Southern District of New York. And it was a two-year clerkship. And following that clerkship, I applied to the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York, among a couple of other jobs. I really wanted to be a prosecutor. I always wanted to do criminal law. So that was a logical choice for me. And I was fortunate enough to get into the Southern District to be, become a prosecutor in that office. I thought I would stay for 
five, six years or so. But after spending nine years as a line assistant in various units, including in general crimes, narcotics, and organized crime and terrorism, I had the opportunity to become a supervisor in the office. Mary Jo White asked if I wanted to become chief of general crimes. And I was thrilled at the opportunity to do that. That was just wonderful news. And so I became chief of general crimes. And that was the first supervisory position that I had. So I spent another eight years in the office as a supervisor, including as chief of general crimes. And then as a, a, an attorney in the appeals unit, first as a deputy chief and then as chief of appeals. And then I became a chief of the criminal division as well. So the job refreshed itself every couple of years, and that was really terrific. After that, I had the opportunity uh, to go to the New York City Law Department. And I was thinking that maybe it was time to do something else. Although <laughs> after 17 years, you wonder sometimes what, when that time is. But the, the time did arrive and that the opportunity really presented itself. And then I thought, well, this sounds like a great job. And what it entailed was supervising uh, a couple of uh, divisions at the law department that had uh, law enforcement uh, related issues. So one was the special federal litigation division, which defends the city against civil rights actions in federal courts. Uh, involving the police department and the Department of Correction. So very challenging issues from a law enforcement and policy perspective. And then I also was supervising the Family Court Division, which is the presentment agency in juvenile delinquency proceedings in the family courts. So criminal cases, but very different uh, angle because, of course, you're dealing with juveniles where the interests of the child have to be taken into account and not just the interests of the community. So it's, it's a whole different uh, angle of, for obvious reasons. So after eight years of doing that job, um, I uh, had the opportunity to go to the Department of Financial Services and become first general counsel there and then uh, deputy superintendent and special counsel. Uh, and uh, so uh, that was uh, an exciting change for me. It involved financial services, which is an area that I had not uh, focused on as much in, in the past. So the idea of a new challenge was very interesting and working for the state was, of course, also interesting. And so I, I took that job and expanded my horizons a bit. And after that, I joined Clipper Chance as a partner in 2018. And I joined a few of my former colleagues at the U.S. Attorney's Office who, like me, practice white collar criminal defense and internal investigations and financial regulatory matters. Okay, so just a few things that you've done so we can get into some of these. Of Let me start at the beginning when you mentioned you always knew you wanted to be a prosecutor. How mm -hmm. did that come about? Well, I think already as a child, I was attracted to criminal matters, criminal law, mostly from television and from reading books about criminal cases and legal issues. Some of the books I read were about lawyers, and, in, and I'm one of uh, five children, and we often talked about what we wanted to be when we grow up. And my siblings, one of them wanted to be a doctor, one wanted to be a veterinarian. And I always said I wanted to be a lawyer as, from as far back as I can remember. And so that came true. As when I was in college, it, I continued to have that interest. And so I applied to law schools and continued to law school after college. What's the biggest difference between being a real prosecutor like you are and the TV kind? Um, well, 
That's so funny. The TV kind is so staged, right? And it's also pat and they do things in court that are so unrealistic. Uh, and it's, I, I, th- I, I find it, I, sometimes it's entertaining, of course, and you enjoy watching, but really for the entertainment value and not for the realism. I, I find watching an actual court proceeding so interesting. I could do that. I could spend all of my time just in court following cases. What happens in court with real people and real issues that have to get resolved, that's what really interests me. And so I, I get a little bit, well, I'm, sometimes, of course, the TV is frustrating when they do things that make no sense whatsoever. I think a good example is that the, the TV show Billions, I think, which is about the Southern District of New York. Right. Where I think the first episode, there was such an obvious conflict of interest between the U.S. attorney and his wife who, who were, and I just, I think I pretty much turned the TV off after 10 minutes. I just, I, I just can't, I, I can't just kind of blink reality here and keep watching the show. It's too much. It was, it was just too much for me. Fair enough. You talked about watching real TV, uh, watching court on real TV. Um, What's your take on whether court proceedings should be live streamed? I think on balance, they probably should be. And uh, it's a good thing, I think, for people to be able to watch and and why not have the public have access. I will say that, that I think sometimes it gets in the way. It has the potential to get in the way if the parties of course, are playing too much to the press and, and everybody is, right? I think if it's a presence in the courtroom and it's just, it's almost like it isn't there, th- that can be fine. But I I would not want it to see it alter the proceedings where people are, are really, oh my gosh, you know, people are watching, so I should behave differently. I wouldn't want it to change the proceeding just because the TV is in the courtroom. Though now that you're mentioning it, I see the opportunity for like a blended reality show, court drama that maybe you could help produce. So okay. we'll, have to, we'll have to put a pin in that. Uh, but I understand. <laughs> So looking at the number of managerial roles you had at SDNY or the other venues you mentioned, how did you navigate that advancement while you were there? Did you have to apply formally? Were you tapped? How how does one rise through the ranks of those storied institutions? Well, I was tapped at the U.S. Attorney's Office. Mm -hmm. And I I really enjoyed my job there and I excelled at it. I think I did a a good job. And I, I was told at various points that people respected my work and my judgment. I worked very hard, tried to reach the right results. Uh, I tried to apply my judgment carefully. And I think people took notice of that. They, they took notice of the results. I tried a lot of cases. I also uh, handled a lot of appeals. Uh, and so when I finished this very large trial, it was a two-month trial in 1999. It was after that case was, was over that Mary Jo White asked me if I wanted to become chief of general crimes. So it was kind of a natural segue. I'd been a line assistant for eight years at that point. So it really was a, a logical point to become a supervisor if I was going to stay in the office. And so she asked me in and she said, would you like to take on this job? And so it was a, a one, I didn't know that, that was the reason for the meeting. So it was just wonderful, uh, a wonderful surprise and, and such a, a great honor to be asked to do that job where you get to train young assistants who come to the office and the first year there, they spent in general crimes just learning how to be a prosecutor. It's very much on the job training and to be responsible for that and to be able to mentor those people was just a, a wonderful opportunity. And once I'd had that supervisory position, then other positions sort of opened up when they became available. And I did the general crimes thing for 18 months. And just as I was thinking to myself, boy, some of this is getting a little bit rote. I'm dealing with the same issues over and over again. I have to review the same kinds of plea agreements on the same kinds of cases. We did a lot of illegal reentry proceedings and where people uh, who 
weren't supposed to come back to the country did, for example, a lot of minor drug cases, a lot of minor, just, I mean, they're essential cases for training, but for me, it was becoming a little bit routine. And, and then I said, some, the, uh, the chief of the criminal division said, well, we have an opening in appeals. We'd like you to take that spot. So I said, fantastic. That's great. This is a perfect time to change jobs. And so I'd always loved appeals. In the U.S. Attorney's Office, you, the appeals unit is small. It's only five people, typically a chief and four deputies. But you supervise the appeals in the office. So when a case is on appeal, the trial assistant or the plea assistant will draft the brief, and then the appeals person will edit the brief and then also supervise the oral argument process. So it's a wonderful opportunity, once again, to mentor people, to get involved in legal issues. A brief is typically a puzzle you have to put together, and then arguing it, of course, is a different kind of puzzle. So I, I really, I was always attracted to that position. And then the spot opened up and I was offered it. Of course, I took that. But coming chief of the criminal division was sort of a similar situation where I was, I think I was in the right place at the right time. And I was asked to do it. And of course, I accepted that position gladly. The other jobs, they opened up and I, I became aware of them through referrals and then interviewed those for those, those positions and, and obtained them. And when you're transitioning from doing your line attorney work that you mentioned and starting to manage hundreds of attorneys <clears throat> and you find yourself in that position, of course, you, you're using a lot of the same value judgments about the cases, but suddenly you have a real personnel team. How do you go about getting yourself prepared for that? Do you rely on your, you know, core skills or do you need, you feel the need to go out and get more professional development in some areas or rely on mentors or how did you prepare and, and execute that? Certainly at the U.S. Attorney's Office, it was trying to adopt skills or practices that I saw other people around me do that I thought were effective. And then it's the force of your own personality, I think, that also plays a role. I always tried to keep an open door practice, an open door policy, make myself as available as possible, make sure people understood that I was available for them, that I wanted them to come to me with questions that I wanted to be able to help. I think that demeanor, it has an impact on people. Of course, they then feel comfortable, hopefully, in stopping by and getting your advice. Some of it is your experience. It's a combination of your experience, what you've observed other people do, and how you decide you're going to behave as a supervisor in terms of having people uh, see what you're like and, and work with you. I think in the other jobs, becoming a manager was a little different because I came into jobs where I had not grown up in those jobs. So I didn't really have a role model in terms of how do people supervise in these positions. And I had to do some different things also like resource management. And we had an enormous, we had ginormous caseloads to deal with when I got to the law department working for New York City. And this was in 2008. So it was just around the time of the financial crisis. And the city's budget was, it just ticked. And so there were very few resources. And a lot of the time was spent trying to figure out how to deal with these enormous caseloads and dockets with few resources. It was always talking about doing more with less. And how could we be more efficient? And that kind of managerial practice and skill is different from just doing the job and telling somebody else how to do it too. And having to manage numbers and figures and staffs, that was a skill that I had to work at and think about and acquire. And I, I don't think it's quite the same as just shifting from being a line assistant to being a supervisor. 
So you have this open door policy and you have hundreds of attorneys working underneath you and some of them you have to give difficult feedback to. How do you approach that? And do you have an example of a time where you had to deliver feedback that you recall and can share with us? So I I think that's a very difficult thing, honestly, to do. And you hate to give somebody, you hate to critique somebody, right? And make them feel like they didn't do a good job. I think nobody likes to hear they didn't do a good job. But at the same time, if you're not honest with people about how they're performing, they're not going to advance and they're going to continue maybe to do the same things wrong. And if they're constantly told everything is okay, then how are they ever going to change? How are they ever going to progress, right? So that's not so good. And I, I myself have gotten feedback early in my career that wasn't so positive at times. Um, I had a, a serious time management problem when I first arrived at the U.S. Attorney's Office. I didn't know I had one, but it became apparent after a few months that I was underwater in a bunch of cases. And so I had to be told to manage my time. I also had to be told and taught how to take on a prosecutorial role, right? To really to be an advocate as opposed to somebody who was clerking, who was sort of trying to resolve a case or help the judge resolve one, right? When you become a prosecutor, you're an advocate. And that's a different role. I had gotten difficult feedback, but I appreciated the honesty. I would rather have people be honest with me and tell me what I'm doing wrong along with what I'm doing right so that I can improve. So I think the, the best way to give the feedback then is to be constructive about it, not just to criticize, but to find a way to say, you could be doing this better if you did it this way. And it's, well, I had a, a situation recently where I got a, a memo or a, a draft brief that was good, but it wasn't quite there. And the way the cases were cited was not as effective as it could have been. And so I gave feedback where I said, listen, this has the cases in it, but they're not cited well. They're not explained very well. And if you could do it this way instead of the other way, it will become much better. And a couple of days later, I got back a revised product that was perfect. And so I was really happy that I'd given that feedback. I think they learned from the experience. It's a minor point, but it's the kind of, I think it's the kind of thing you replicate on a smaller or a larger scale, depending on what the problem is. So I think it is important to give feedback. It's something that we all talk about as supervisors that we need to be doing for the junior associates. And we are striving to do a better job at it because I think you, you do a disservice when you don't give the feedback. And how do you like to get feedback from the people that manage you? I would want it openly, honestly, and directly. I'm a pretty direct person. I don't like to beat around the bush. I often miss, honestly, I miss suggestions. If people are suggesting something to me around and they're kind of being kind of circuitous about it, I might miss it. I'd rather somebody be direct with me and say, listen, this was a problem here. Going forward, we should do it this way. It's, of course, helpful if there's a suggestion of how to make it better, right? Uh, but I would rather not that people kept it to themselves or even worse, mention it to somebody else without telling me that there was a problem. And uh, so I, I would rather you tell me directly and so that I can fix it and deal with it with you. And while we're in the area of hard conversations, are you able to share with us a story about a big mistake you've made and how you recovered from it? <laughs> well, I made a really big mistake early in my career that I could laugh about now, but I really wasn't laughing at the time. Right. And I, it was my first trial at the U.S. Attorney's Office. And the practice is to have a, a second seat supervisor help you with the trial for your first three trials. So this was going to be the first trial. It was a really big deal. I was, you know, 10 months into the office. Everybody knew it was our first trial. So everybody was excited. Oh, Celeste is having her first trial. This is great. So I get to court that morning 
and the defendant is incarcerated. And so my second seat says to me, casually, as if the answer is obvious, so you produce the defendant, right? And what she means is that the assistant U.S. attorney was responsible for putting in a slip to the marshal's office to have the incarcerated defendant produced in court for whatever proceeding. That was our job. We had to put that slip in. And I had not done that. So I looked at her and I was more, I was like, I, I'm sure I blanched like, ah, oh no, I didn't do that. And so the defendant, of course, wasn't there. And we quickly checked and he was in Otisville, New York, and we're in Manhattan. So of course, he's not going to arrive within 10 minutes from the, they, they never would, it, it would take hours to get him in any event, even if he had been in the, at the MCC, the, the jail that's right next to the U.S. attorney's office. But he was up in Otisville. So this was a disaster. And I just couldn't believe it. I was like, I can't believe I've made this mistake. This is terrible. I wanted to crawl under the table and just disappear. Anyway, the judge comes onto the bench and he looks and he says, so this is actually, it's Judge Duffy. So people who know Judge Duffy will understand that this was a really, really big problem. He says, no defendant. He said, looks at me and he says, do you realize how much this costs? Do you realize how much this costs the system? We have 12 jurors or a, a jury panel on hand, your time, your colleagues' time, the defendants, the defense's time, my time, the court time. This is an, you realize how much all this costs. I looked at him and I said, Gerona, I am well aware of how, how enormous this mistake is and how much it, how many people it impacts. And I feel really terrible that it happened. I'm so sorry. And, and he goes, all right, trial in six weeks. Or in three weeks, I think it's a trial in six weeks. And he basically walked off the bench. So quickly, I realized that was going to be okay, that the speedy trial clock was not going to run in three weeks, that we still had time. So that was all right. But of course, I was still mortified. And I go back to the office and I have my trial cart with all my files and everything. And I'm wheeling it back to the office. And, my, and, and people are like, oh, how did he go? Did he, wait, you're back already? Did he plead guilty? And I have to tell people that I have forgotten to produce the descendant that I made this enormous mistake. I mean, it's just awful. I'm so embarrassed. And again, I want to just crawl under the table and just disappear. But my second seat advised me to go ahead and send a letter to the judge and apologize again, because I had already apologized, but I wanted to really just reiterate the apology and I mean, at the end of the day, um, what was the impact? I, my father said, I, called, I talked to my dad later that day. My dad said, couldn't believe it either. He said, how did this happen? How in the world? Don't you have a checklist? And as a, I became a manager later, of course. So the whole checklist comment was, was so funny to me. I said, yeah, Papa, of course we have a checklist, but I didn't use the checklist. I just forgot. And I said, all right, well, let's. Let's use a checklist next time, shall we? And I said, yeah, of course. And yeah, I mean, it, and ultimately it was okay. The trial did go forward in a few weeks. The defendant was convicted. I thought he was guilty, so he should have been convicted. And the, the judge, he did not seem to hold it against me when I went, when I came to court a few weeks later with the trial. I, I felt like the moment had passed. Mistakes happen. You learn from them. You try to move forward. You build on the positives that come out of it, I suppose. And years, a couple of years later, I was, I went to see the judge. I went to see Judge Duffy because I was doing a wiretap and he had to sign, he had to approve the wiretap, right? So he has to sign off on the papers and I came to his chambers 
And he looked at me and he said, you're, you seem a little quiet and a, a little tense. And I said, judge, I still feel so bad about that, about not producing the descendant that day. And then he goes, he said, oh, don't worry about that. Y you're fine. You're not arrogant. You're totally, you're okay. You shouldn't worry about that. And clearly it had been handled appropriately, right? With the apologies, the appropriate apologies. I hadn't had any kind of an improper attitude about the situation and everything was okay and forgiven. But it was pretty awful moment for a young prosecutor, for sure. That's a pretty incredible story. And I bet when you share it, a lot of people learn the same lesson. <laughs> Just by dint of it being scary. It would be I nice if that responsibility was on somebody else's shoulders and not the prosecutors, actually, that whole production thing. But I doubt things have changed. I wanted to ask really? you, given your background in cybersecurity, really? how you're thinking about AI's impact on today's lawyering and the future of the profession. It's obviously a hot topic right now among lawyers. Do you have an opinion on that? Well, of course, people are concerned about the impact of AI and, and whether it will replace attorney <laughs> jobs or enhance them. I think likely it can have an enhancing function. I think there are some things that can be done by AI that won't need to be done by attorneys, maybe in the first instance, but that will still need to be done as maybe the groundwork can be laid with uh, using AI, for example, to do basic, to find basic uh, information out, right? But then you still need to verify the information. We've already seen instances where attorneys didn't appropriately verify information that an AI produced and they got themselves into some very serious trouble. Uh, because they said that they had done the verification process. It was kind of a double problem, right? Not doing it in the first place and then lying about it. So that that is not setting a good example of how to deal with AI, let's just say. So I think AI can probably be, be quite helpful. It's a bit threatening and you have to be careful about its impact. The question, of course, is what is the AI drawing from? What data is it using to spit out whatever it's going to be spitting out? And this is one of the big concerns, I think, is the use of algorithms and what those algorithms do, and do they build in biases that we're actually trying to root out? So I think this is one of the hot topics, I, and the use of AI is really how, what data is used, and it's, it's of course, data. You think, oh, it's data, right? So it sounds objective, right? But it, it's not necessarily objective. In fact, unlikely that it is, because it builds in uh, whatever, wherever it's coming from can, be, can have built-in problems that you need to be aware of. Uh, so I think that's one of the really interesting issues uh, going forward is what data are you drawing from? What are you using? I think falsifying data or adopting or, or copying things is also a real issue. I think what, how do you protect original product? How do you, how do you, what, what about creativity, right? What happens to it? Like when, as an, as an AI looks very creative, what room is there for further creativity on the part of people, right? So where do you draw the line between AI and creativity is another really interesting issue how you protect and foster creativity going forward. So, <clears throat> yeah, it's, It seems like lawyers are going to need to be reprimanded for submitting AI briefs like high school kids submit AI-generated term papers. So we'll have to see how that goes in the future. Yeah, it can be a real problem. I, I suppose if, if it's totally transparent that you're doing it and, and you're not getting paid extra for it, you're getting paid for whatever the work was, maybe that's all right. That you could set some parameters, I suppose. It's not great. I mean... The student is suffering because they're not doing the work and they're not, they're not learning. So that's actually a, a different issue. Associates are using AI to generate their work instead of learning how to do the research and put, put together a paper that's also not so great. And billing the client and the ethical issues. Yeah, there's a lot wrapped in there. You've been a public servant in New York City for multiple decades. 
I don't know if you live here, but I know you you still work here. What's your take on what you see when you look around the city after COVID, both in terms of the immigration issues, which you've also worked in, and the economic issues mm-hmm. and criminal issues, which um, is also a subject of your yes. area of expertise, enforcing it? You see some good things and you see some bad things post-COVID. And some things were already happening regardless of COVID, I suppose. I mean, I, I feel like I do see an increase in downtrodden people around me since the pandemic. And I don't know what if that's pandemic related or not, but, but you see an increase in homelessness, I think I feel like um on the streets and also on the subways. And so that's not that's sad to see that. You worry about what's causing that and what can be done to help people who are on the streets. And some of those are mental health issues that are also they need to be addressed, obviously, but not all of it is. Some of it is economic downturn. And then I see a lot of empty storefronts. Especially in my neighborhood on the Upper West Side. And I think people are, I'm very concerned about that when that's an economic shift to online shopping in part. And and part of it is that rents appear to be extraordinarily high. And you just simply can't really make it when in a, on the storefront. And our neighborhood looks just very different from the way it looked 10 years ago or 20 years ago or whatever, when we had almost every storefront was filled with a shop of some kind. And uh, now you don't have that anymore. And I think it also changes the character of your streets. You know, if there are no stores. So that's not such a great thing. On the other hand, I, th- I do think there's been, a, I do think people are emerging from the pandemic. There seems to be more livelihood, more in terms of just people out and about and, and things are uh, seem like there's more hustle and bustle in the city again. And it feels like it's, it feels like there's a bit of a rebound to me just in the, the subways are super crowded again and people seem to be up on the move. Tourists are back. So I think there's some positive signs. I think the difficulties with immigration and the migrant crisis is huge for the city. I, I, Mayor Adams has asked for more money, of course, from the federal government to deal with the crisis. And he's asking for an enormous amount of money to deal with it. And it's possible that amount is, is a little bit exaggerated. But on the other hand, given that there's a, a right to shelter in New York, the money has to come from somewhere, right? And the city, it's going to be a problem, right? It's, I, I think he's right that some services will necessarily have to suffer because the money isn't endless and the city doesn't really, where, where's they going to get the resources from? The, tech, the, the tax base is limited, right? So unless it gets an infusion of resources to help with this crisis, the budget will suffer in other ways. So that's, a, that's certainly a concern. I appreciate that. And while we're looking at areas of lifeblood in the city, we have wonderful universities here. Can you tell us about your time as an adjunct professor at Columbia Law? Sure. So that was uh, really a lot of fun, actually. Um, having gone to Columbia myself, uh, it was really great to be back uh, and to teach students and to be a, be a part of the campus. I, I, the academic environment is wonderful. It's a, it's a different one, of course, from the business environment or, or being at a firm or being at a job. So I, I really enjoyed being a part of that. And each time, each each year, I'd had maybe 12 to 14 students that I taught legal writing and research to. So it was first year students. So they were new, typically fairly eager to learn. And so that, it was actually, a, it's a fun class to teach. I, I, I enjoyed uh, being able to sort of give back in that way, to be able to say, well, this has been my experience. And the whole point behind the adjunct professor program in the legal writing area was to use practitioners as teachers so that they would be able to teach the students from the perspective of this is really a practice. It's a legal practice workshop is what it's called. And so it was meant to be very practical. And I I enjoyed that very much. I did it for eight years. 
by the end, I, I thought that it was uh, feeling a little bit stale and I, I was time to take a break from it. But so I, I, I did enjoy those eight years very much, especially just being part of that community. Years before that, I had taught a couple, a few years, I taught a, a, an ethics class at Columbia and that was to third year students. And I have to say they were a bit different from the first years. They were sort of already on the way out the door. They had their job offers and they kind of arrived to class late when they weren't really engaged. Maybe that was just one year that I had this one class that was particularly not great. And so that was a little bit frustrating. I, I, I felt a little bit like a grandma telling them to be on time and to participate. But I have to say the experience with the first years was it was better in that regard. They were more eager and still sponges and wanting information and then being taught. When you <clears throat> interview someone to be a part of your team, is there a question you like to ask that's a bit unusual, but that you like to hear the answer to? I don't know if there's any, tip, any typical one question that I ask everyone. I do like to look at the resume. I typically look at the interests and try to find something about the interests that I, I want to engage on just so I get a sense of the, on, on, on a personal level what this person is interested in and not just their job history. I want to engage them really on a, a level where I can get a better sense of what kind of a colleague they will make and what's motivated them to do different things. And right, people are so multifaceted, so I want to learn about some of the other facets besides just the education and the work experience. I wanted to ask you to speak, if you would, about the intersection between the rising threats of democracy, both here and abroad, and the legal profession and what the legal profession can do in those situations and, and where we belong in the mix? Well, that's a very interesting question. I think that the legal profession has, of course, a very strong role to play in making sure that the role of law continues to be the role. <laughs> uh, I, I think we saw, we've seen some threats to that, to the role of law, especially in connection with the 2020 election and the January 6th demonstrations. And so I think there was a real threat there in my mind to the role of law and in, in politicizing a process that really was a legal one. And it should have been a peaceful overturn, uh, uh, a, a peaceful transition of, of power that ended up being something so different and so frightening and so disturbing. In my experience, yeah, the Department of Justice working for the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, we were adamantly apolitical. And we were guided by what we viewed as certainly the role of law. And the institutions that we worked with, like the, the FBI and the DEA and the other agencies that helped us investigate our cases, we viewed them, we, we viewed ourselves as neutral, as following the crime or following suspicions of crime and, and sorting them out. And we were not politically motivated. And I think that it's very destructive to um, undermine those institutions uh, by making claims about their politicization that are actually not true. And so I think that's happened a lot in the last, yeah, in my memory, it feels like it's happened a lot, especially in the last five years. And I find it to be very disturbing and very destructive to undermine those institutions in a way that is not fair. I'm not saying those institutions are perfect. Of course, they've had their problems in the past and plenty has been written about problems with political behavior. I'm not saying that it's all squeaky clean, but by and large, those institutions do function independently and in a way that's honorable and ought to be respected. I think it's critical to the rule of law that those kinds of institutions are respected. And it's unfortunate 
that at every turn, things are being politicized. And I think sometimes people do things that are, maybe I'm being naive, but they add something to an analysis to make it seem like everything is political. Almost every article I see, just to give an example, uh, in the paper, or maybe this is in Law 360 or wherever, there's, there's an, it, it's about whatever court decision, right, is being made. It'll be Judge so-and-so, an Obama appointee, Judge so-and-so, a Trump appointee, Judge Solomon's, but I don't know that it's relevant every single time or ever. It is, I'm not saying it's never relevant, and certainly on the Supreme Court, we're concerned about politicization and then the, who appointed who and everything. I'm not saying it's not relevant, but there are plenty of times where it is really not relevant. That's, and those judges, they, they don't say to themselves, okay, I was appointed by so-and-so, so I'm going to behave a certain way. And to be tagged with that, as if that label means something, I think that undermines them. I think it undermines them in a way that I think is not appropriate. Um, so did you want to do an overall analysis of the direction of the Supreme Court by looking at conservatives versus liberals? Okay, sure, those are valid studies. But for every article to describe who appointed what judge and whether the judge therefore is going to be liberal or conservative or Republican or Democrat, I, I don't think that's uh, necessarily productive. I appreciate that. Celeste, is there a case you're particularly proud of that you can share with us? One case that I'm particularly proud of is a case that I had when I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office. It was a drug case, and I was in narcotics in the early 90s. And so when we think about mass incarceration, that's the time period when sentences were through the roof on the federal side, and especially for people who had prior convictions. And so I had this defendant who got wrapped up in a sting with the DEA where there was a lot of crack involved. And the sentence was he was facing mandatory life because he had two prior convictions for dealing PCP on the street corner. Or not PCP. I'm sorry, he was addicted to PCP, but he had dealt crack on the street corner and been arrested a couple of times. So he was actually a relatively minor guy. Uh, he had not possessed a gun. There had been no violence in the case. But there he was facing mandatory life after these two prior convictions. And he was kind of dopey because of the PCP addiction. So he really, uh, it was a very difficult situation. He was facing so much time. So we decided to see if he could be a cooperator. With the cooperation agreement, he could get out from under this mandatory minimum. He was facing mandatory life. Yeah, if he can get out from this mandatory sentence by cooperating and earning a 5K letter uh, cooperation agreement with a sentencing reduction possibility, depending on if he could help uh, testify in another case or uh, contribute to an investigation in some way that would actually trigger a reduction in sentence. Um, I'll say the, the prospects for it at the time were not that high because he wasn't such a, he was so dull and he was not such a great witness, uh, seemingly. But under the circumstances, we said, well, listen, there is a, an, there's a possibility he can testify. Let's sign him up to the cooperation agreement and let's see what happens. So we did. And a few years later, lo and behold, he became a key witness in a case. And while he was in prison, he cleaned up. The fog lifted. The addiction was uh, managed. And so he wasn't taking drugs anymore. And he became much more clear and really very articulate and well-spoken. I mean, he had been inarticulate initially because he wasn't able to put as many words together with that drug fog. He became a really good witness. And because he was this really good guy, he was like 
this genuine, nice person. And he testified in a very credible way. They couldn't cross him because he was just so genuine. So then it became time for sentencing. And I wrote the 5K letter, the sentencing letter to the judge to explain his cooperation and how amazing it had been and how valuable it had been because it really was super valuable. And I really, I, the letter was true, but it was very genuine also. And so he got time served. And at that point, it was about maybe it was, he had been in jail for five or six years. So it was an amazing result, right? To go from this mandatory life to time served after five or six years. And so that was really great for him. And he was very thankful uh, for the whole process. And I felt like I'd done my job. So I don't know that thanks were so necessary, but it worked out very well. A couple of years later, I was on the subway platform with my husband and we were going to some meeting or something. And I, I hear Miss Celeste and I turn around and it's that defendant. It's, his name's Pablo Reyes. He said, it's me, Pablo. Do you remember me? And I was like, of course I remember you, Pablo. How are you doing? It's so good to see you. And he said, I'm doing great. I'm working construction. I'm living with my sister. He, he looked good. He sounded good. And he said, I just want to thank you again. I was like, wow. I mean, can you imagine? So there I am with my husband and he's, he thanked me again. And I was like, it's so good to see you. I'm so glad that this, that of where you are and where this, how this all ended up. It was just a, a great ending to what started out to be a very difficult story. I think there's a lot you can learn from a situation like that. I, I don't think of the sentence that he faced was appropriate in the first place. And we were dealing with those sentences and that was the law at the time. We found a way around it with that cooperation agreement that worked out for him. And, and ultimately, it had a happy ending, but it, it was really quite something. That's an incredible story, a real full circle moment, only in New York. I want to end on a slightly lighter note. If I'm correct, I believe you're married to an attorney. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So is that like a sitcom or how does that work? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. We met at Columbia Law School. My husband and I, Paul Haskell is my husband, and he was a year ahead of me. One of my college roommates introduced us. And but yes, I mean, it's a lot of law, right? <laughs> but he's a corporate lawyer and I'm a litigator. Of course, there's, at least there's that difference that we can have different things to talk about. And we both do what we love. We pursued our passions and that's the main thing. So if it happens to be the same passion in the area of law, that's fine. Our children are, a couple of them are adamantly not going to be lawyers. And one of them actually does want to go to law school because after a, a few work experiences, he's decided that's what he wants to do. And I didn't do it as a default. I became a lawyer because I wanted to be a lawyer. And that's why I decided to go to law school. It, it's something that I felt passionate about. And my husband felt the same way. And if my son feels that way as well, then of course he should pursue his passion. I don't, it, it, some people go, seem to go to law school because they can't think of anything else to do. And they're like, well, I might as well get a law degree. That wasn't my path. And so that's, it's been a great path for me. I'm, I'm really glad I did, I did pursue it, was able to pursue it. Celeste Kulaveld, thank you so much for joining us on This Lair's Life. We really appreciate your time and all of your stories. Well, thank you very much for having me. I so appreciate that you asked me to participate. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Lawyer's Life. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you listen. Find more city bar podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, iHeart, 
or at our website at www.nycbar.org podcasts. And don't miss Building Belonging, a podcast that embraces authentic conversations about DEIB solutions by amplifying the most marginalized voices in the legal industry and exploring spaces others dare not. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.